Welcome to You Are Not Broken, the only podcast that combines science, medicine, and psychology to re-educate your brain and help you live your best love life. And I'm your host, board-certified female urologist, Dr. Kasperson. Ladies, today I'm so excited to talk to Dr. Sophocles. She's a gynecologist and a sexual medicine specialist practicing in Princeton, New Jersey. She appears regularly on the radio program, Dr. Radio on Sirius XM. She sees women for menopause and sexual dysfunction concerns, as well as general gynecology. And you can find her at www.princetongyne.com. So princetongyne.com. Thank you so much for coming on for me, with me today. Thanks, Kelly. It's really nice to be here. So tell us, how did you get into menopause and sexual dysfunction treatment? Well, it was kind of a combination of personal need and demographics. When I finished training as an OBGYN, I delivered babies and did surgery and really enjoyed that. And then I moved to Europe for eight years. And when I came back, I was older and so were a lot of the patients I was seeing. And I moved to Princeton, New Jersey, and there were lots of people delivering babies, but there was really no one taking care of perimenopausal and menopausal issues, no one taking care of sexual issues or even women with urologic problems. So it just seemed like my community had a need and I knew I had training, so I knew I could help, but it wasn't until I started treating these women that I realized I kind of needed more training. So I started going to courses like NAMS, the North American Menopause Society and ISWISH, the International Society for the Study of Female of Women's Sexual Health. And I, I learned how much I didn't know. And now I would say I feel very comfortable and competent treating women uh, you know, with menopausal age issues. So I did it because my patients demanded it. I mean, they were getting older and they had they had different needs and questions than they had when they were having babies. Fantastic. And I think for any of our younger people listening who are doctors is like, you can keep evolving and changing even within your specialty, right? That's what's so right. cool about it. And I found that to be actually really fun. The fact that, I mean, I'm a chronic learner, Kelly, like you are, I think, but I think it's really cool to be trained as a urologist or an OBGYN and feel like you're given this set of skills, but then whether you realize there's something that you would love to make your special sauce or something that is untapped. I mean, in my case, honestly, most of the patients were coming to me and they had been going to the same OBGYN who delivered their babies 20 or 30 years before, and they just weren't, you know, weren't getting their, their questions answered. So I think it was sort of a, a need, but it's now become an interest. I mean, I just, I love doing this. I find it really gratifying to help people with intimate issues. Awesome. Why do you think that sexual dysfunction is so common? Well, I think that's a really big and loaded question. So first of all, it's uncommon because it's underdiagnosed. I think most women with sexual dysfunction just suffer in silence and don't feel they can talk to other women, even their friends about it. I also think there's a lot of sexual taboo in our society that it's a very, it's a society where male sexual pleasure has always been kind of the main objective of, of a sexual encounter. And I think the last 10 or 20 years between Me Too and Time's Up, you know, a lot of the negative fallout from those, I think it's made a lot of women realize, hey, I'm allowed to actually speak up for myself. I'm allowed to actually think about enjoying myself sexually. And there's been a bit of a revolution 
in parallel with the biotech sector. I mean, 94% of research dollars do not go to women's health. So I think that's slowly changing. And then women are becoming more vocal about it. So I think it's, quote, more diagnosed because people are speaking up. Traditionally, doctors have not have been loath to talk about patients' sexual issues, but there's a movement to have you know doctors better trained to be culturally competent and to be comfortable talking about sex. So this is all just happening now. And I think like my daughter's 17, I think her generation of women, I hope, will experience doctors who are more willing to talk about it and clinicians who are better trained and even better more open society in terms of sex toys and lubes and just the fact that it's a natural, wonderful thing to to have sex. Totally awesome. I think about, you know, physicians being trained in taking care of our body and sleep and eating right and exercise and sex is just another little piece of it. And it's becoming medicalized, which is good and bad, right? Like we're talking about it. But I I do think in most cases, it's more than just taking a pill. Of course. So there are FDA approved medications for sexual desire, but I had five patients today ask me about, I ask everyone about sexual desire. Five women in a row said, oh, I have no libido, no libido. Well, the easy thing is to say, here's a pill. But the more important thing is to take a really good sexual history and to give the patient permission to talk about it, to tell her it's okay if you don't have libido. It's okay if you have relationship issues. Or one woman had been assaulted as a younger woman and she was so sure that couldn't be affecting her. But the more we talked, the more it became apparent to both of us that she was sort of carrying baggage from many years ago. And that was affecting her marriage and her attitudes towards sex. And so I think, yes, it's being medicalized, but it's not, never out of fashion to, to treat sexual function and libido and sexual performance as a multifaceted, very complex issue. And often I need people besides myself to help my patients. I often refer patients to sex therapists or pelvic floor physical therapists, depending on what the issues are that we uncover. Totally, 100%. What would you say, shifting to menopause, what would you say the biggest misconception about menopause is that you see? Well, it's that it starts and stops and it's just this quick little period of time when you have some hot flashes and then it's over. Yeah, totally. That would be mine too, 100%. They're like, well, yeah, I don't, I'm not in menopause anymore because that's over. Yeah. And then they wonder why their vagina is dry and they're incontinent and they have recurrent urinary tract infections. So I think the biggest thing, Kelly, you and I can do for our patients is teach them about genitourinary syndrome of menopause, this big, long, yucky term for the chronic issues that happen, the chronic progressive deterioration of the bladder and urethra and vagina that happens as we lose estrogen because you lose estrogen, but you keep losing it. You don't just get it back. And so patients are truly surprised. They say, well, I haven't had a hot flash in five years. What do you mean this is progressive? And and they don't understand the link between their urinary issues and menopause or their sexual issues in menopause. Do you find that? Totally. hundred percent. Especially since, you know, the data on GSM, general urinary symptoms of menopause, is that it really starts rearing its ugly head about 10 years post-menopause, right? So early 60s, late 50s. And so it's so dissociated from the end of your periods, especially since a lot of women just have hysterectomies anyway. So they really don't know when they went through menopause. 
And so the fact that it's tied in at all is really kind of a stretch, but it's a hundred percent tied in. And, you know, to think of it as a progressive chronic disease of if you don't do something when you're 60, when you're 70, it's going to be, you know, even worse. Correct. I mean, we, we actually don't think of preventative health in terms of postmenopause. We just figure, well, just fade off into the sunset and sit in your granny chair. But that image just doesn't work anymore because number one, women are living longer. Number two, they're physically active longer. They're starting careers, new careers sometimes at 60, or they're divorced and they want to stay sexually active and they want to stay relevant. So I have 60 and 70 year olds coming in saying, I'm divorced, but I'm dating. I'm on the internet and I do not intend to bake cookies and sit in a rocking chair. I want to be alive and vibrant. You know, we also know that women who stay sexually active and maintain their bladder health have a better overall self-image. They feel better about themselves. They're more likely to take on a new career. They're, they have usually a better, we know it affects your marriage in a positive way and, and self-esteem and even professional goals. So these have all been studied. It's actually kind of exciting that we have things we can do and then it has all these peripheral effects. I love it. So leading up to menopause, let's talk about perimenopause. Like, I think a lot of people don't really think that's a thing. (laughs) When does perimenopause start? So I describe it pretty generally as the decade before menopause, which is also kind of vague because nobody knows exactly when they're going to be menopausal. So Kelly, if we just talk definitions, menopause is defined as the time in your life when you've had no period for 12 months. So if you've had no period for 12 months, we call you menopausal. You are menopausal. And your life after that, you're considered post-menopausal. Peri means around. So perimenopausal is the decade surrounding that event. So if the average age of menopause is about 51 and a half, so you figure even women in their early 40s can be perimenopausal. Um, I had a woman who came in today and she's 41 and she's actually started having irregular periods. And she doesn't have any other reason to have irregular periods. And so I was explaining that her ovarian function is probably starting to get a little wobbly, a little less consistent. And that's playing out in terms of irregular periods. Doesn't mean menopause is imminent, might be 10 years from now, but it's this sort of decade of unpredictability. And that's the hallmark of perimenopause when the ovarian function is a little less regular And it can be expressed as period irregularity or mood changes. So sadly, you can get, quote, menopausal issues way before you actually become menopausal. Where are we with the science of, you know, hormone replacement and starting it before 12 months after your last period? Like, when do you start saying, yeah, it's time to, to do something if a woman is interested and they're a candidate for hormone replacement therapy? Right. Well, that's a great question because... We used to think of hormone replacement therapy as something you only did once you were menopausal. And in most cases, that's true. We don't always test blood levels and we don't really have to. We really base it on your symptoms. But now birth control pills have become so low dose that many OBGYNs will use birth control pills in the perimenopause to sort of smooth that hormonal rockiness right up until someone is menopausal. And we now are comfortable using low-dose birth control pills until, say, the age of 55. Whereas when I was training in the 90s, the rule of thumb was, well, once someone's 
you know, over 35, maybe you should get them off. And that's, that myth is completely busted now. So you can use birth control pills as that in between, like they're kind of maybe still ovulating. They're not really menopausal yet. So they need contraception. That's a really important point that many non-OBGYNs may not think about that a 48 year old is still probably ovulating, maybe not every month, but many months. So just because she's approaching 50 doesn't mean she may not need contraception. She does. She may need it more than a younger woman because she doesn't really know when she's ovulating. So birth control pills become a nice way for those perimenopausal women to get kind of a version of hormone therapy to help their moods, but also contraception. Love it. How do you work on transitioning somebody? Say somebody's coming in and they're on a low-dose birth control or they have an IUD, right? How do you transition that person to menopausal hormones? Right. So there's there's not only one way, and, and I'm, I guarantee you, you can have other experts on this podcast who might say something different. And so this is not to be taken as in stone, the only way. How I do it, I actually take them off their pill. I wait a month. I check their... FSH and LH, if their FSH and LH are elevated, then I know they're not fertile anymore. They don't need a birth control pill and I transition them. Or if they come in and say, you know, I'm on the pill still, but I haven't had a period in a year. I take them off the pill. If they continue to not have a period for the next month or two, I put them on HRT. HRT is either a pill that's estrogen and progesterone mushed together, or it's transdermal estrogen and oral progesterone or progesterone in an IUD. But again, there's lots of ways to, to make that transition. Very cool. What's the right time age-wise? So say a woman, say a woman, you know, listens to to us and she's like, I want to maintain my health and my bones and my brain. I want to maintain things. And I think estrogen and progesterone might be right for me. What's the, is, is there like a right age to talk about it? Or I think the other question of that is when is it too late? Yes. I was just going to say another a flip side of that coin is when is it too late? And let's, let's first say, when is it wise to start? And before I say that, I'll say most women are actually in neither of those camps. They're terrified of hormones and they say, Mm-mm, you're not getting me on those hormones because they cause cancer. So I think the first thing to do is make sure maybe on a different episode, <laughs> Kelly, to do like a myth busters about cancer risk? Like what are the real cancer risks from menopausal hormone therapy? Because 28 years ago when the WHA, I came out, there was some kind of potentially frightening info that the media just went crazy with and it scared women and it's now scared their daughters. But when we put together all that info over the last 28 years from then on, it turns out the cancer risks are much, much, much less significant than we thought. Different. Sorry, that was a sidebar, but it's important. The right age to start hormone replacement therapy is really kind of right when you become menopausal and for the decade thereafter. We believe that if women say 50 to 60 can get the benefit of estrogen and if they have a uterus progesterone, that that will help their bone health really be maintained into their later years. So when they're 70 and 80, they will have Think of it as putting money in a savings account. If I put it in at 20, then when I'm older, I've got it to spend and then some. So same thing, if I take estrogen between 50 and 60, I am buying myself an extra decade of bone strengthening that then will last me as I live longer. Same with coronary arteries. I think it's really clear now, we know there are estrogen receptors on the coronary arteries. And when we look at women who've taken estrogen, 
age 50 to 60, and even those who literally refuse to come off and are taking it into their 70s, their arteries are cleaner than they should be based on we know natural kind of atherosclerotic aging process. I find that exciting because let's be honest, cardiovascular disease is the number one killer of women by a mile. Women aren't afraid of it. They're much more afraid of breast cancer. But if you put 10 women in a room, most of them will will end up dying of heart disease, not of cancer. Mm-hmm. I love that. I want to I want to myth bust for a second just because people need to hear this. Putting risk in things we can like think of, right? Because statistics are really hard for people. And what does the thirty percent increase mean when it's only thirty people out of a you know ten thousand anyways? So the risk of drinking one glass of wine a night is a higher risk of breast cancer than being on hormone replacement therapy. That was one analogy I heard that I really I liked because it totally clicks so people understand like. Most people don't think twice about one glass of wine a night. I know. They don't even think twice about going to the beach, but you're probably increasing your risk of skin cancer a lot more. Well, in fact, based on for breast cancer risk, a mammogram has the same radiation as one day at the beach. So I have patients who refuse mammogram because of, quote, radiation exposure, but they'll go to the beach all summer. So I tell them, if you can give up one day at the beach, you can find your breast cancer a year earlier. <laughs> I think it's so useful for doctors to use, you know, for the statisticians to like create those for us, right? Because I can't, I can't do those to like be like, oh, a day at the beach. But like, since we have those, they're such useful analogies for people. The other one, so we get just an x-ray to check for kidney stones in urology. X-ray is the same amount of radiation as an airplane ride. Right. I tell them the same thing. Same with their mammogram, same radiation as an airplane ride to California. Yeah. So I think when you, when, when doctors use risk in kind of terms like that, you're like, well, yeah, I'm going to take an airplane ride to go to New York city. Right. Because patients will often say to me, well, I want something with no risk. And you know, there's risk in Tylenol. There's risk in driving to the doctor's office. There really is risk in, in almost anything, but it's about how much, and it's about what you're trading away by not doing it. So I believe in mammogram. I know there is less risk in an MRI because there's no radiation, but our system can't afford MRIs for everyone. So with what we have, I feel like it's a very low risk way to find breast cancer and treat it. And because of mammography, we found so much more breast cancer, but we treated and cured so much more breast cancer. Yeah. And I think going back to the, you know, the fear is like, if we want to truly worry about things we're statistically going to die of, it's heart disease. Right. And, and nobody wants breast cancer. I don't want to downplay breast cancer, but most of it is treatable and curable. Right. I mean, the five year survival of breast cancer is now 90%. So that's, that's hugely different than it used to be. And part of it is that we're finding it earlier because of mammogram programs. It really is. And of course, you know, new chemo agents and adjunct therapy and all kinds of stuff. Awesome. The other risk one analogy, just to, cause it's so fun to play with is the risk of hormone replacement therapy causing breast cancer is still, it's the same or lower as the risk of being obese or being overweight and have, and your risk for breast cancer. So being overweight is a risk for breast cancer that I think a lot of doctors don't talk to their patients about. And if you truly want to decrease as much as you can, your risk for developing breast cancer, maintaining a healthy weight is actually very important. Very. And in fact, maintaining a healthy weight will obesity is actually linked to 13 different cancers now. So it's probably the single most important thing you can do to lower your cancer risk is to maintain your weight. 
But easier said than done. We know that. Easier said than done. Absolutely. So how long can women be on hormone replacement therapy? So say they started around menopause 51. My understanding is kind of those strict guidelines of get off as soon as possible are kind of, those guidelines are getting softer. They are. I mean, that is still the party line from the American College of OBGYN still says only take hormone replacement therapy to treat symptoms and stay on it for as low a dose and as short a time as you need. That is still the official party line of the American College of OBGYN. However, menopause experts at conferences all around America are saying, look, we also have been told have been trained to have people go on for no more than 10 years. Mostly that's because we envision that after 10 years, there is more cardiovascular disease. And because estrogen can increase the risk of clot, the thought is, ooh, I don't want to give my patient something that can increase clot risk if she now has more cardiovascular disease. The reason that's a flawed thinking is that We also know that people on estrogen have cleaner arteries than people who don't. So it's a bit of a confusing situation. And I will tell you that the the national experts that I am fortunate enough to be mentored by and work with keep their patients on for a long time, as long as the patients have have interest and, and will. So I think the I think the story will change. Right now, I'm, we're supposed to tell people, just go on for your symptoms and, and then come off. But I have many women who've been on for 10, 15, 20 years, and they are incredibly healthy. Their bones are incredibly strong. And they accept that if there is a cancer risk, that they find it the small risk to be vastly outweighed by the fact that they're avoiding osteoporosis and hopefully heart disease. Yeah, that's where I struggle with the with the guidelines because so much of this is for preventative health, right? Where you don't have symptoms of osteoporosis. You want to prevent that. You don't have symptoms of heart disease. You don't have symptoms of, you know, insulin resistance and we're or dementia. And we're trying to prevent all of that with this medicine. So the thought that we'll just be on it as long as you have symptoms kind of seems like it's it's a completely different conversation. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's a totally different one. And 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 sadly I don't have the answer. Like, what's the longest you can be on? There isn't that. We don't know that. I think uh, older women, that, you know, in my experience, is those are the people that they know the benefit of being on it. And they get a little panicky because they're so worried they're not going to find a doctor to continue it for them. I had a lady who was 71 recently, and her provider just pulled her off her hormones and said, ah, you've been on it long enough. Pulled her off her hormones. And she she literally went through menopause at age 71. And ended up going back on the hormones and was like, that was an experiment she wished she didn't go through. Yep. I have many patients like that. They're, they'll see it often an internist and the internist will just say, well, I've decided this is long enough. And it's not really based on data, although keeping them on it isn't really based on data either. But it's more of a feeling of do you want, you know, is preventative health, is, is preventing osteoporosis and heart disease important to you? you know, cause they're like we said, sort of silent killers. Mm-hmm. So can hormones help sex lives? Um, yes and no. Sex lives is a very, very multifaceted two words, right? So many things can help sex lives. Therapy can help sex lives. A slinky negligee could help sex lives. A, a trip to the Bahamas could help sex lives. Marriage counseling could help sex lives. Hormones can help in some ways. Estrogen, probably not, although vaginal estrogen by making the vagina healthier and more 
elastic and better vascularized could certainly help. We use testosterone in the U.S. off-label. There is no testosterone preparation that is FDA approved for female use in the U.S., which is a whole other topic about why our society doesn't value that. But I use testosterone, as do many of my colleagues, in a compounded fashion. We have a compounded pharmacy or pharmacies that make up very tiny, low, low dose levels of testosterone that we use on the clitoris to help boost production of new nerve endings and to help neovascularization, new blood vessels. And this helps women with orgasm. We also use testosterone that we apply on the upper thigh or the back of the knee. And a little tiny bit goes to the brain and that can help in a very subtle way with libido. So that's how we use hormones in terms of sexual medicine practice. But as I said, there are FDA approved non-hormonal medications that have been shown to increase libido through uh, dopamine by increasing the dopamine or limiting the serotonin in the brain. So we, we use medicines to help female sex stuff in the brain. And then we use hormones topically to, to help both the brain and the clitoris itself. I love that answer. I think it's a, such a such a good answer to that question, right? Because I think so many women, you know, they kind of blame menopause as the reason for their lackluster sex drive. And the data doesn't always support that. You know, there's actually some great data to say that women in their 60s and 70s are having the best sex of their lives, right? And what are they doing that's different? And so I think women kind of crutching on menopause and low estrogen as the reason, it's like, ah, it's actually way more interesting than that. And you don't have to be on hormone replacement therapy, estrogen, progesterone, to have the benefits of a good sex life. No, you can even have no hormone replacement therapy, not even testosterone, and work with, you don't even need a sex counselor. I mean, there's so much out there. I actually did a webinar last night, and we talked about that, and there were patients who called in with questions. And a lot were breast cancer patients who really suffer from really dry vaginal atrophy from their anti-estrogen medications. And so most of the questions were like that, and were how, how to help, and Mona Lisa touch laser, and all kinds of stuff. And one woman called and said, well, what is wrong with me? I have a really great sex drive and I'm in my late 60s. Is something wrong with me? And I was like, no, you are lucky and you're happy and you should enjoy that and celebrate that. Good for her. I and know. good for her for talking about it too, right? Yeah. Like, that's yeah. great. She wasn't bragging. She just said, I'm, I actually have great sex drive. And some of it feeds on itself. When you have libido and you have a partner that you enjoy being with intimately, and you have sex that keeps the vagina healthy, but it's also a positive feedback loop. And then hopefully you remember to say things to your partner, like, I'm still really attracted to you. And he says, well, I'm really attracted to you. And then you feel better about taking a risk and initiating sex. And so it all feeds back on itself in a wonderful way. Oh, I love it. Do you have any favorite non-hormonal vaginal moisturizers? Yeah, I have a few. Um, there's a, a pharma company called Fem Pharma, F-E-M-M-E-P-H-A-R-M-A, and they make one called Satisfait, S-A-T-I-S-F-A-I-T, Satisfait, and that has hyaluronic acid in it. And then hyalogyne is another one that has hyaluronic acid in it. And I find that pretty much anything with hyaluronic acid is great because hyaluronic acid is actually used in high-end cosmetics for the same purpose, to bring moisture to the surface of the skin. So whether you're putting it on your face or you're using it intimately, it will bring moisture into the vagina. It will, it will help with that. So I, 
I like that. And again, these are vaginal moisturizers. These are not lubes to be used during sex, although you could. They're to be used every three days, like every day for a while and then every three days just to keep the vagina more moist. I have patients who aren't even sexually active and they use these because their vaginas get so dry. It just is miserable to play tennis. It's miserable to get in their car and drive. So hyaluronic acid containing vaginal moisturizers really do, do help them. And there's no hormones, so they don't have to worry about whatever risks they are worried about. Perfect. The other thing I love just talking about that is like, we spend so much money on skincare for our skin and our face, right? Like just as a society and as a nation. And it's like, this is just skincare. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, I love how you said that. That is great. And we talked about that last night too. This podcast, by the, this uh, Facebook Live thing, by the way, was on Well, Comma, Being. So you can go to Well, Comma, Being and see it. Because we talked about how exactly that. And there's nothing wrong with buying a little aquaphor or whatever type of external thing you want to apply and it can be super inexpensive it can be vaseline or a and d but to the vulva because god nobody even likes to say the word vulva much less think about caring for it but as we age the vulva gets very dry and very delicate and it can be abraded so right it's a, another form of skincare and now there's all kinds of stuff with pretty marketing so it's even fun Totally. Yeah. And just a plug to all the women listening who are suffering from any sort of vulvar itching, burning, don't suffer in silence. I see it over and over and over again that they're just itching and, and you know, trying yeast products. And it's like, see somebody who cares and knows about vulvar pathology because there is relief. We just got to sometimes troubleshoot. Right. Like you can go, you know, there's something, a rather common diagnosis called lichen sclerosis that is so underdiagnosed because people are just treating themselves for yeast for years and itching and itching and itching. And vulvar itching can be a sign of lichen sclerosis. And lichen sclerosis is a serious skin disease, even though it's almost always benign, it can if untreated, become cancerous. So we definitely, if you're having itching, please uh, and if your GYN or your family practitioner or whoever is just giving you yeast medicine and it's not getting better, please try to find a gynecologist who specializes in vulvar pathology or even a dermatologist. You can also look on the National Vulvodynia Association, NVA, that website, or you can just look up lichen sclerosis, S-C-L-E-R-O-S-U-S and see if you can find an expert like who cares for it in your area. I think it's really important because I have seen people come into my office with cancer and they've said, yeah, my gynecologist has just been giving me yeast stuff for 10 years. So if your quote, vulvar itching slash yeast isn't getting better, Kelly's right. Don't just sit on that. Make sure you get it checked out. Even Reddit and Facebook have pages and subgroups for lichen sclerosis. Yeah, I think, we, like you said, I think it's way more common than we know about just because there's so many women who suffer in silence. And now we, we treat it not only with steroid, which is the common treatment for it, but it's another application for the use of the CO2 laser. So we use CO2 laser for vaginal atrophy, but we can also use it to regenerate the tissue on the, the vulva. And when I first brought this laser to the United States eight years ago, we were thinking it was just going to be used for vaginal atrophy, but it turns out it's excellent for vulvar applications. And we even use it in women who have recurrent urinary tract infections, which is cool. So for people who don't know, how does the laser help the skin of the vulva and the vagina? Oh, okay. So a 
vaginal lasers and they're they're sadly not all created equally because now there have been many junky knockoffs that work sort of okay but not great so you want to you make sure your clinician uses a co2 carbon dioxide laser or an erbium laser they create little tiny injuries actually in the tissue just like if anyone's ever heard of having a laser facial or laser on the face they actually make little tiny like pinpricks in the face and your skin heals from that injury by making new collagen. Same with the vaginal laser. We make a hundred little dots, micro dots in the vagina, which sounds painful, but it's not, it's painless. And we, about three to four hours later, the tissue will begin to create new proteins and those new proteins end up leading to new collagen formation. So you actually are gonna make your own new collagen in the vagina and new blood vessels. So the new collagen makes for elasticity, which is always a good thing, sexually speaking. And the new blood vessels help both with bladder function, clearing out bacteria from urinary tract infections, and to allow moisture with arousal. So with sex, you get more moisture and just a healthier, beefier, more sturdy tissue like you had when you were younger. So it's really changed gynecology. It's really been a wonderful tool in our toolbox. I mean, it's not the only thing. There's plenty of medication treatments out there, estrogen, DHEA, ospemaphine, that will will also work towards this. But for women who want something natural, who don't want to use medications, this has become a nice alternative. Sadly, there is out-of-pocket cost for it. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful way to describe it. I think, you know, my the people I see that the happiest is like when we incorporate sex therapy to work on the mind and we treat the vulva and the vagina with lasers and add estrogen, like you do it all at once. Like these people come back like having great sex lives. Like my last my last lady was like kissing her husband in the hallway after her last Aww. laser tree. Like the success stories are so satisfying. That is so great, Kelly. I know I had a man come in last year on Valentine's Day with 24 roses. And I was like, Oh, I'm I'm sorry, sir. This is a gynecology office. He's like, I know, these are for you. And I was like, What? Why are you giving me roses? He said, Because thanks to you, we now have wonderful Valentine's Days again. I thought that was so cute. Oh my lord. I That's know. so satisfying. I was so touched. <laughs> I was like, I called my husband. I'm like, you're going to have to do pretty well this year. I just got 24 <laughs> roses. <laughs> that is so cool. Yeah, I thought that was cute. Any tips for keeping sexually active in the midlife? Yeah, keep it fresh. Don't be afraid to kind of do new things. Don't be afraid to, we talk about red light, yellow light, and green light and sex therapy. So if you've done missionary position your whole life at Friday at eight o'clock at night, and that's exactly your sex life, and you have no interest in whips and chains, that's fine. Don't ever buy whips and chains. But if you think you might want to try something a little different, or even ask your partner, do they have a fantasy that doesn't sound too crazy to you? It's kind of fun to investigate that a little bit, and you might surprise yourself. You might say, well, I am very conservative and timid. That would never work for me. But then it's so exciting for your partner to see that you know, he said, well, I kind of always wished, you know, you would wear a nightgown and high heels or just something. And to do that and to see that fresh, exciting look on your partner's face. And and that can stimulate further discussion and further things changing it up because, I mean, we do crave excitement. And I've had patients tell me, 
my sex life is like eating a bowl of Cheerios every single day. And Cheerios is good, but you know, after 25 years of Cheerios, and I don't want my husband to feel this way and go find a younger woman or something like that. So many women will come to me saying, what, what can I do to spice things up or change it around? And I never tell anyone to do something they're uncomfortable with, but I, I think it's okay. And there's a lot of really fun books out there too that are not written in a tacky way. You know, they're, they're written by women, usually from a woman's perspective. There's one for men called Come As You Are, which is by Ian Kerner, K-E-R-N-E-R. Oh, she, that's, she comes first. She comes first, right. She comes first. Come As You Are is Emily Negosi. You're right. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, she comes first. And so I often will recommend that. I actually keep a bunch, Kelly, in my one exam room, we have a little, little mini library and I'll show you because then that might be fun to, to kind of use some of those. Let's see. So come as you are, Emily Nagoski, Nagoski. She comes first, Ian Kerner, the multi-orgasmic woman. When Sex Hurts is by Andrew Goldstein. And that's more clinical, but it's helpful. It's not written for doctors. It's written, you know, for patients. And that's helpful too, if sex is painful for you to really understand it. One has a really funny title is called Becoming Clitorant. Um, It's written by a sex therapist in Florida. And this woman reminds me of the mother on, uh, what was the movie, Parent? Uh, what was it? Oh, God. Oh, 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 meet the fuckers. Meet the fuckers. Yeah. You remember meet the fuckers <laughs> too, Barbara Streisand. This totally. woman sounds just like Barbara Streisand. She's just really fun and open. Yeah. And that's Lori Mintz. Lori Mintz. Right. right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So you, you know them all and, and you know, I, I know them all. Yeah. <laughs> it helps to be a bibliophile. And I'm like, yep. Read it. Yep. Read it. Cause I love reading. Oh, me too. I was an English major, so I love this stuff. But um, yeah, maybe maybe we need a Kelly Casperson podcast thing on just books, you know, and maybe even a book group. Maybe we need to start up sex medicine book group. <laughs> so good. Um, so I like literally, you know, going back to, you know, keeping sexually active, my theory for many, you know, years now that I'm in this, my theory is that most women are just bored. And they stop having sex because they're bored. And so like, here I am doing this theory of like, maybe you're just bored because people are like, I don't have any desire. And it's like, well, do you have desire for Cheerios? Right? Like, so desire and play in like doing something you're not bored of, or like, all I do to work out is I just run three miles every day. And like, you start hating your workout, right? If it doesn't fill you. And so I'm driving to work this week and listening to a sexology podcast. And so she, the sexology, she's a sex therapist. She interviews Ian Kerner, who's coming out with a new book next April. So he's like making the podcast thing. So I need to find this guy and get him on my podcast. So Ian Kerner, who wrote, she comes first, did a study of 3,500 people about sexual boredom. And he's like, Basically, he's like, yep, women are bored. And I literally am pounding my steering wheel. <laughs> like, like, I've been saying this. Yeah, like wanting to pull over and I'm like, oh my God, Ian Kerner just said women are bored. This justifies my whole theory. <laughs> no question. There's no question. And when one of the things that when I do sex counseling with my patients is we try to literally be able to find pleasure and excitement where there isn't any, you know, we, we often start with, we take a, I give my patients a chocolate bar and I find out if they want dark chocolate or milk chocolate. Like I only like dark chocolate, but whatever you like. And we each take that chocolate bar and we spend a long time opening up that chocolate bar and being 
really, really aware of the beautiful wrapper and the, the beautiful font on the cover that this little gourmet chocolate company put into and the imprinting and blah, blah, blah. Then we take that wrapper off. Then there's a gold foil. And we marvel at how sparkly and beautiful that gold foil is. And all the while, we're both just getting really excited to have the chocolate, right? But it's the journey getting there. And it's the looking at the chocolate bar, not as something to be inhaled, but as a piece of art to be appreciated and culinary art, right? And so, you know, that's just part of it, Kelly, is I think helping women see that afresh because gosh, 80% of American couples have sex once a week in the missionary position on a Friday night. That is really ridiculously dull, (laughs) you know? So I don't know if it's just Americans because we're workaholics. I, I somehow picture myself. I fantasize that in France and Italy, it's more variable than that. I guess, I don't know why I just do, but we can do better. We can do better as a society to make sex, not this like chore that women have to endure every Friday night, but that's something that they're excited about. You know? Totally. And I, th- I love the chocolate. That chocolate bar thing is cool. My, my thought about the chocolate bar is you're not going to eat the chocolate bar for somebody else. Right. And I think so, so many women are having sex for somebody else. And st- instead of making it for you, it's like, you're not going to eat a chocolate bar for somebody else. Like it's, it's meant to be enjoyed. Yeah. And I think that you just really, I mean, I know we have to wrap up pretty soon, but I think you really just hit the most important point of all, which is that sex doesn't have to be only for male pleasure. I mean, that seems so obvious to you and I, but I can't tell you how many women feel it's just a chore. And, you know, you know, the term mercy sex, like I'm just having sex because my husband really needs it. He really wants it. And I have to do it or he's going to find someone else, or I have to grip my teeth because it hurts and just get it done with. What if we flip that argument on its head and said, what if we could teach and empower and train women to take care of their bodies so that sex wouldn't be painful and then go a step further and actually teach them to enjoy it and teach them that you can enjoy it without an orgasm. That's the other big shocker is most women, because for men, orgasm is so important. They feel that if they can't or don't orgasm, they've failed. They've failed the couple. They've failed their partner. My lesbian patients feel the same way. If they can't orgasm, their partner knows and they failed. And I think that's another big misconception that sex can be enjoyed even without orgasm, not that we don't want to. And then the last misconception is even how we orgasm. You know, we quote, you, I don't know what you quote. I quote like 70 to 80% of women only can orgasm through clitoral stimulation. We think it's probably closer to 90 or 95%. <laughs> so, you know, in the movies, when you watch women in sex scenes in the movies, they're always having orgasms just from penile penetration. And that is so darn misleading. I mean, especially if you're a 17 year old girl having sex with a 17 year old boy, there is like almost no way that you're going to have an orgasm through vaginal penetration because most 17 year old boys don't even understand how to make that happen. You know what I mean? It's just so, there's so much misunderstanding, but I love what you said. I, I, you hit the nail on the head. And I think, you know, going into the low desire, right? Again, of like, it's not that you have low desire. It's that you're not desiring the fact that it's boring and you're doing it for somebody else right? And you got to fix that. And then you're like, then the desire will follow. But we put all this weight in the desire needing to be there first, instead of paying attention to like the event for what it is. Being like, let's throw away that whole idea of even needing desire. Let's work on the event. 
oh, this is so fun to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming. What's the future? What's the future with you in this work? Well, I'm enjoying what I'm doing now. I have a really busy private practice in Princeton, New Jersey, but I really love um, the podcast format and I love writing and reading and teaching. So I'd really like to be able to start a curriculum for educating women about a lot of the topics we've spoken about tonight and really having that be accessible to them. I love what you're doing, Kelly, and I'm so just happy to, to meet you and get to know you. And I, I look forward to seeing what else comes on your podcast. And yeah, I mean, I'm working on a, a book, but it's, you know, not near completion yet. But I, I think book works for some of us like you and I, but I think other people learn better whether it's audiovisual or whether it's by talking to their friends or whatever. So I would just love to be able to empower women on a broader scale. And I'm trying to figure that out right now, how, where, when to do that. And I hope you'll join me. I hope we'll get to play again sometime. So really, I enjoyed talking with you too. Totally. Yeah. And then thank you for being on my team. And I think it takes a team. We have a, we have a nation and we have a world to educate. So like, we cannot do this alone. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's start. I love it. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. All right, Kelly. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.